You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the middle school class. Your middle school class meets on Sunday mornings right down the stairs to my right, your left. And they, um, they do that every Sunday. So middle school class, you're dismissed. We're going to do something before we get into our study today. By the way, those of you who have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open with me to the book of Exodus. Second book in the Bible, chapter 7. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure one of our ushers gives you a Bible so you can follow along. We like to go verse by verse through the Bible, so it would be good for you to have one to follow along in. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app because in there, if you go into the menu and the live notes, you'll find that there are live notes for this service, so you can follow along, take your own notes, share it, stuff like that. It's all, it's all really good. Before we get into our study today, though, we're going to do something a little special uh, one of the things we like to do is when we have babies born in the church here, we like to dedicate them to the Lord. We see that Jesus was dedicated to the Lord as a baby. And uh, we see that we see throughout the Old Testament that babies were dedicated to the Lord and kind of consecrated and basically parents saying, Lord, you gave me this child and I give them back to you. I recognize that I'm only a steward of their life. This child is yours but you've given them to me to raise for a certain time, and I want to raise them in a way that's faithful to you. And so when we do baby dedications, really the purpose of it is that we want you as a congregation to be with the parents and say, together we're going to make sure that this child is raised in the Lord. We're going to pray for this child as they grow up, and we're going to believe and, and train them and teach them so that when they get to the age where they make a decision for themselves, that they would choose to follow Jesus. So... The interesting thing about today's one is that it's actually my baby who we're praying for. So we've never done that before, but we're doing it. Hopefully it's the last time too. So <laughs> we'll have these guys come up. I'm going to have uh, Pastor Jeff come up, and then uh, this is my wife, Rosemary, and this is our baby, Hope. For those of you who know, we have a little bit of a story with our baby girls that Felicia, we almost lost, and she was, um, I had a difficult pregnancy with her, so when I found out I was pregnant again, I um, was not that excited because I knew what I was going to go through, and we had almost lost Felicia because of a liver disease that I get. So we just prayed and prayed in hope, and we have a Bible verse for her, Romans fifteen thirteen that, um, where is it? Yeah. Me the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him and he'll fill you with all hope so that's the point that there's a lot of hope as we trust in the Lord and we can rest in him and so that verse is why we named her hope we felt that the Lord gave us so much hope as you all prayed and as we could trust in him yeah let's pray father we thank you so much for the Katie family and for hope that you have granted unto them we want to join with them in consecrating her back to you, thanking you for her life, asking that you would bless her, bless them as parents, as a family, that you would forever bless them, lift them up, sustain them, sustain them as parents, Nick and Rosemary, to raise up hope, to be a follower of you, and for their entire family, Nate and Felicia as well, 
that you would bless all of them together to seek you out forever, to seek themselves out in you in love, that they could be blessed in you and be known by you for the, forever. We thank you and join with them in this uh, prayer for Hope's life, for the dedication of her life to you, and we commit to enjoining with them to be a strength and love in you for them. We thank you so much and pray your blessings upon them forever in Jesus. Amen. Amen. She wants that microphone. Yes. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, currently on Sunday mornings, we are studying through the book of Exodus in our series, which is called Be Set Free. You know, the great message of the book of Exodus is that our God is a God who saves. He is a God who leads us out of bondage and into freedom. And whatever it is that you might be held captive by or captive to, God wants to deliver you from those things and show you true freedom in Him. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Exodus chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people of Israel from among them. So Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who desires to be known by us. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Lord, that you call us and draw us to yourself. And Lord, we pray it this morning that we would hear your voice. That we would let it not just go into our heads, but that we'd let it sink into our hearts and that it would transform us from the inside out. But thank you for your transforming power in our lives because we'd be nowhere without it. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and change us and minister to us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, have you ever felt the feeling of disenchantment? I think disenchantment's actually a pretty interesting word. I'll tell you why in a second. Disenchantment is the feeling of disappointment or disillusionment with something that you previously were enamored with or captivated by. 
Uh, maybe you've, if you've ever bought into a timeshare program, then you probably know exactly what disenchantment is all about. You got into it thinking, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be able to go on vacation all the time. We're going to be able to use this timeshare all the time. It's a great investment, great value. And then you became disenchanted with it as you realized that it wasn't all that you had thought it would be, uh, or at least all that you had gotten out of the sales pitch. My wife and I, here's another example. My wife and I recently, we've been watching this show. It's a reality TV show called Married at First Sight. Anybody ever seen this? It's kind of a weird show, right? But anyway, the concept of the show is that people who desperately, and that's really the key, desperately want to get married. They're tired of dating. They're tired of looking around. They want commitment. They're having trouble meeting someone. So they go on this show, and they have these relationship experts. One of them is actually a pastor. And they have these relationships experts do this analysis of them and then pair them with somebody else who's supposedly going to be a perfect match for them and the first time they meet is on their wedding day. And the idea is really that the problem with our dating culture is the lack of commitment. And so what if we started with two people who wanted commitment and wanted to be married and believed that love is something that doesn't just happen to you like you're walking down the street and you get hit with lightning, but love is something that develops over time? I think that's actually a pretty interesting concept. And so you watch these people who so desperately want to be married, you could say that they idolized marriage and now they experience what marriage is really like and, you know, as a married couple, if you're a married person, you kind of look at that and there's this kind of sick feeling of satisfaction that you get out of it as you watch these people who are so idolizing marriage and thinking that, you know, this is the, the supreme thing in life. And they go through all the normal stuff that married people go through. And here's the point. They get disenchanted with marriage because they had this such a big high view of it and they realize what it's really like. If you think of it, there are probably many times in your life when you have been disenchanted with someone or something. You know, on a personal level, I love language and linguistics, uh, and I think the word disenchantment is a very interesting word because it paints a vivid picture. Think about what that means. To be enchanted means to be under a spell, kind of like a magic spell, under the controlling power, under the controlling influence of a magic spell. So to be disenchanted means to come out of the spell to escape the magic spell that you were under. It's like the spell is broken and now you can come back to reality. In the old stories, disenchantment was the word that was used when a spell was cast by an evil sorcerer, but it was broken. Disenchantment. And there was a chance to be set free and come out from under the control of that enchantment. Sometimes disenchantment is a very healthy thing. It's a very good thing for us to go through. Today we're going to see a great example of that. Here in Exodus chapter 7 and into chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the beginning of the series of plagues that God brought against Egypt. Now, generally, I think that when we think of plagues, and even the word plague, I mean, it, we tend to think of a form of harsh judgment. And certainly, there was an aspect of judgment in these plagues. But when you look closely, which is what we're going to do today, Here's what you see. You see why God sent the plagues. He even says explicitly, here's why I'm doing this. And you see that the reason was disenchantment. He wanted the Egyptians to become disenchanted with the things that they trusted in, with the things that they worshipped, with their deities, with their idols, so that they would abandon those things and they would put their trust and their hope fully in the Lord God alone. And by doing so, they would experience freedom. Well, we'll see if it worked as we go through our story, and 
We'll see how it applies to us. The title of today's message is Confronting Your Idols. Here's what we're going to see in this section for you outline likers and note takers. First of all, we're going to talk about how God shows himself to people who aren't looking for him. How does God show himself to people who aren't looking for him? Secondly, we're going to talk about confronting the idols of our hearts. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the curse reversed. So, how does God show himself to people who aren't looking for him? In Exodus chapter 7, we begin here seeing the second time that Moses and his brother Aaron come before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they come before him with this message that God has given them to go and bring to Pharaoh. They say, the God of the Hebrews... Yahweh, the Lord, the the one true and living God, he has demanded, Pharaoh, that you release the Hebrew people from the slavery that you've been holding them in, from the bondage that they're in, and you release them to go out into the wilderness and serve me. That's what God says. And so what is Pharaoh's response? Maybe you remember it from previous chapters. Here's what Pharaoh said. He said, who is Yahweh, who is the Lord, that I should obey him? Okay, so... In other words, Pharaoh's saying, look, I don't know your God. I don't know who this Yahweh is. I've got my own gods that I believe in, us as Egyptians. We've got lots of gods that we believe in. I'm not really looking for a new God. In fact, I myself am considered a God. That's what the the Egyptians believed. And so he said, look, I don't know who Yahweh is. And frankly, I don't even care. In fact, I have no need for your so-called God. And I don't see why I should do anything that he says because I've got my own gods. In fact, I am a God. Now, if that sounds familiar to you in any way, I think it should. Because I think there are many people in our modern society who have this exact same kind of outlook, right? Where they say, hey, look, I've got my own set of beliefs, so don't try to impose your beliefs on me. I don't necessarily believe in the God of the Bible, and I don't see why what the Bible says should have any real bearing on my life or why it should change anything that I do or how I live. See, Pharaoh is an example of somebody who's not looking for God. He's perfectly content with what he already thinks and believes, and he's not looking to change it. See, that's a lot like many people that we know. It's a lot like maybe even some of you here today. You come here and you say, well, that's kind of me. I know what I believe. I'm not really looking to change it. I don't necessarily believe in what you believe. Maybe it's a lot like what your neighbors think or even many of your family members or coworkers. The question is this. If somebody's in that condition where they say, I'm not looking for God, I'm not really interested, how does God reveal himself to people who aren't looking for him. Now, before we go any further with that thought, we need to recognize this fact, that the Bible says that actually no one is really looking for God until God comes and reveals himself to them first. Here's what Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. He says there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. If you look through the Bible, what you find is story after story of how God pursued people and called people and revealed himself to people who weren't looking for him at all. In fact, I challenge you to think through every character in the Bible. That's almost everybody's story. I was thinking through it last night. Even Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They sin against God and they hide from God. And what does God do? He pursues them. Abraham, story of a guy who's not looking for God, but God comes and pursues him. And you go through the entire Bible. The disciples of Jesus, they're just kind of doing their thing. And one day Jesus shows up and reveals himself to them. You see, that's the story of the Bible, of, of every character in the Bible. And I would say it's actually the story of each of our lives if God pursues us. I put it this way. If you are searching for the real God, 
the true God, then that search did not originate from inside of you. I'll put it this way again. If you're searching for the real God, if you find yourself searching for God, the true God, really to know him, that search did not originate from inside of you. The result, it's the result of God pursuing you and calling you and drawing you to himself. Because as it says, no one seeks God on their own, you could say. In Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it this way. He says, the natural mind is enmity with God. See, that's our default condition. That's our natural state that we, we are in. The human heart in its natural condition, its goal is to avoid the real God unless God comes in and intervenes and changes things. Now, some people would object to that, and I think it's a fair objection. Here's what they would say. Well, now, what about all these different religions in the world? I mean, isn't that proof? Aren't all the different world religions proof that people are seeking God? I mean, look at even nowadays in our area, it's so popular for people to practice their own kind of, you know, vague spirituality and trying to connect with the divine even though they may not follow any particular religion. Isn't that proof that people out there are seeking God? And the answer is, well, kind of, but not really. And let me explain what I mean. You see, people innately know, all of us innately know that there is a God. We, we look at the created order of the universe and we know that there is a God, but yet the way that people seek to avoid God is oftentimes not by rejecting God outright. Oftentimes the way that people seek to avoid God is by, by seeking out counterfeit gods, making counterfeit gods for ourselves, and they tend to be gods which we believe we can control or manipulate in some way. Because if there's one thing that we fear in our heart of hearts, it's losing control, losing our sovereignty. And so we seek to avoid, one of the ways that people seek to avoid the true God is by embracing other gods, false gods, whom we believe that we can control. Let me give you two examples. Two, there are two kinds of controllable gods, two basic kinds. First of all, there's a, God who is, there's a kind of God who is nothing but rules and laws and moral standards. That's all it is. Their relationship with God is based on moral standards and you keeping rules. You could say that that's a God of all law. On the other hand, you've got a God of all love. And in other words, a God who has no standards whatsoever. All acceptance, all affirmation, never demands anything of you, never challenges you. So the reason that the first kind of God, that God who is all law and all rules and all moral standards, the reason that kind of God is controllable is because there's a sense in which you feel that if I'm good enough, if I'm moral enough, if I keep all the rules, then God will owe me. He will owe me because we've got a bargain, right? If I do this, then you'll do that. And so if, in that way, I believe that I can earn blessing by being good enough. I can get him to give me what I want because of my performance or doing enough for him. And in that sense, I'm still in control because I'm still the one, you know, pulling the levers and manipulating things. That's why some people get very angry when God doesn't give them what they want or maybe what they ask for because they're like, hey, we had a deal, right? At least I thought we had a deal and I'm keeping up my part of the bargain. I'm doing all the things. I'm doing all the rules. I thought we had a deal, but they're frustrated because it seems like God isn't playing by their rules. On the other hand, you've got a God of no standards whatsoever, right? A God, that God is controllable because, well, he never tells you what to do. He, he never demands anything of you. He never says anything that you don't want to hear. He never challenges you. And that's not a real God. That's, a, that's also a form of counterfeit. So a God who is all law is a God who you can get to owe you. But a God who is all love and no law is a God you owe nothing to. 
The true God, the God of the Bible, is a God who says, I am holy, and you must forsake your sin, but I love you so much that I'm going to send my son in order that you might be set free from your sins, in order to pay the price for your sins that you could never pay yourself. I'm going to save you myself and set you free. That's the gospel. But the answer, to answer the question, again, that we began with, how does God reveal himself to people who aren't looking for him? Again, we've we got to begin with the understanding that all of us, none of us are really looking for God until he comes and draws us to himself. We, we tend to create counterfeit gods. So this applies to all of us. Because no matter who you are or where you're at with God, there at least was a time in your life, if not now, when you were not looking for God, but God was pursuing you. So we see two ways in this text that God shows himself to people who aren't looking for him. The first, again, these aren't the only two ways, but they're pretty important ones. First of all, the first way that God shows himself to people who aren't looking for him is through ambassadors. That's what we see here with Moses. In, in verse 1 of chapter 7, the Lord says to Moses, he says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. It's an interesting phrase that he says there, right? It's as if God is saying to Moses, look, Pharaoh said, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know who that is. And, uh, you know, and so God says, well, look, if he doesn't know me, Moses, he does know you. And so you're going to go before him and you're going to be my ambassador. You're going to be my representative before Pharaoh. It's a concept that we see very clearly in the New Testament as well. Speaking to Christians, that Paul the Apostle, he says this. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors as if God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses another kind of word picture. He puts it this way. He says, a Christian person's life is like a living book a book written by Jesus for the whole world to read. And here's what that means. It means that if you're a Christian, there are people who aren't looking for God, but they are looking at you. They, they may not be willing to read the Bible, but they will be willing to read your life, and they will read your life, and they, they will take into consideration what your life says about the God that you believe in. So I want you to think about that for a second and just Get that concept really deep in your mind. If your life is a book that people look at to see what it tells them about your God, what does your life say about the God that you believe in? And you could think about different aspects of your life, the way that you spend time and money and resources and all those things. But there's a sense in which that's hard, right? We kind of push back when we hear that at first. We say that my life is somehow a letter about God that people are reading, and that's, you know, we, we push back and we say... I don't know about you, but I'm not a perfect representation of God. And I'm kind of, I hope that people aren't looking at my life because if they see me, they're going to see something imperfect. They're not going to see Jesus. They, they should look to Jesus, not to me. They should look, they should read the Bible, not my life. But the fact is that some people just simply won't, right? They, as much as they should, and that's right, they should look to Jesus. They might not. If they should read the Bible, but they might not. And so your life how does God show himself to people who aren't looking for him? One way is through ambassadors and representatives. We see that with Moses here. And that's what Christians are called to be as well. F.B. Meyer, the Bible commentator, he puts it this way. He says, believers are the world's Bibles by studying which people may come to know the Lord himself. So I challenge you to consider that and ask yourself this. If your life is a book that people look at and read to see what it tells them about your God, what does your life say about the God that you believe in? 
The second way uh, we see in this text that God shows himself to people who aren't looking for him is by eroding their confidence in the things that we put our trust in other than him. By eroding our confidence in the things we put our trust in other than him. In verse 3, God tells Moses that he's going to go and he's going to talk to Pharaoh and Pharaoh is not going to comply. Once again, Pharaoh is going to have a hard heart. We're going to talk about this in depth next week, by the way. Our study next week is called The Peril of a Hard Heart. And we're going to talk about Pharaoh's hard heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? If you're interested in that topic, come back next week. That's what we'll be talking about. But God tells Moses, he says, Pharaoh is not going to comply. And here's what's going to happen as a result. He says in verse 4, he says, I'm going to bring the people people of Israel out of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the result will be this, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is going to send a series of spectacular plagues upon Egypt, 10 plagues in all. And here he's telling us why, what the purpose of the plagues is going to be. It's going to be this, to reveal himself to the Egyptians. That's the purpose of the plagues. God is wanting to reveal himself to the Egyptians through these plagues. Now, how does that work? Here's how. We're going to see each of these plagues, as you go through them, you're going to see how each one is a direct confrontation of the various gods of the Egyptians. See, the reason God sent these plagues was this, to erode the Egyptians' trust in their gods, in their idols, and cause them to trust in Yahweh. And here's the good news. It actually worked. We know this, that many Egyptians did, in fact, turn from their false gods, and they did put their faith in the Lord God. Now, how do we know that? Here's how. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, it tells us that many Egyptians, when the people of Israel left Egypt and they went across the Red Sea, it tells us that many Egyptians went with Israel and they left Egypt as a mixed multitude. What that means is that there were a bunch of Egyptians who turned away from their Egyptian gods and became followers of Yahweh. So in a, as strange as it might sound, the reason for these plagues was actually God's mercy. Now, we don't tend to think of it that way because the word plague sounds like harsh judgment. But these were dramatic measures. They were even painful measures. They were measures of judgment that God took. But the ultimate purpose of them was to shatter the confidence of the Egyptians in their false gods so that they would turn aside from those things and they would put their faith fully in the Lord God of Israel. Now, I believe that in the same way, God will allow a similar thing to happen in our lives. To reveal the emptiness of the things that you have put your hope in, your trust in other than him. He will allow your trust in those things, your confidence in those things to be eroded, even shattered so that you will put your trust in him alone fully. And when that happens, like with the plagues, that can be a very painful thing in your life. If you've been putting your trust in something or someone and God allows that to fail, He allows it to fall apart. He undermines it and torpedoes it so that you will trust in him alone. That can be a very painful thing. But in the end, it is a merciful thing because ultimately he's setting you free from that. He's causing you to fully trust in him. And that brings us to our next point, which is confronting the idols of our hearts. So we see Moses and Aaron, they go in to see Pharaoh and, and uh, Pharaoh demands that they perform a sign to prove themselves. And so Aaron casts down his staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And in response, 
Pharaoh calls in his magicians and sorcerers, and they use their occultic magic to replicate what Aaron has done. They cast down their staffs, which also become serpents, and Aaron swallows up their serpents and eats them. Now, the word used here for serpent is actually really interesting. You might remember that a few chapters ago, a very similar miracle took place when, when uh, Moses met God at the burning bush. God said, throw down your staff, and it turned into a snake. What's really interesting is that it's a different word for snake that's used in the first story than the word that's used for serpent in the second story. Now, the reason for that is because, this is at least what many people believe, the reason is because the water serpent was a national symbol of Israel. Water, you know, or I'm sorry, of Egypt. You know, Egypt was so closely tied to life along the Nile River. So one of their national symbols was this water serpent that lived in the water. You see it in a lot of their hieroglyphics. In other words, for us in, in the U.S., right, this would be like if Moses and Aaron come in, they see in the President of the United States, he says, well, you guys got to prove to me you're from God, and so throw down their staff, becomes a bald eagle, then the President produces some bald eagles, and then Moses and Aaron's bald eagle kills and then eats their bald eagles. That's kind of the uh, parallel. It was sending a pretty definite message of who's superior. And yet God's, or Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to do what God tells him to do. And that sets the stage for the first of the ten plagues. At the end of chapter 7, God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh once again, demanding that Pharaoh let the people go so that they can go out and serve the Lord. And once again, Pharaoh says, no. And so Aaron takes his rod and he touches the water of the Nile River and the water of the Nile turns to blood. All the fish die. It's a terrible stink. The water becomes defiled and undrinkable. Now some people, you know, maybe if you've seen like National Geographic has done specials on, on the 10 plagues and things like that. They, they try to come up in it with and explain naturalistic explanations for how this could have happened. Here's the deal. God may or may not have used natural mechanisms to accomplish these plagues. But even if he did, that doesn't really change anything because the timing and the character of each of these plagues certainly came from God's hand alone. As we're going to see, each of these plagues had a definite strategy and a definite purpose. Each plague confronted a particular Egyptian deity and the purpose was to erode the Egyptians' trust in their gods and show them that the Lord God was greater than all. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for plague literally means to strike or to punch, right? Each plague was God's way of striking a blow to a particular god of the Egyptians. The Egyptian god Kunum, for example, was the guardian of the Nile. The god Happy was the spirit of the Nile. The great god Osiris was believed to have the Nile as his bloodstream. And the Egyptians worshipped actually the river Nile itself. And so Aaron puts his staff in the Nile and strikes the Nile. This god that they worship in so many different ways. And the water turns to blood. Fish die. There's no more water to drink. And so what do Pharaoh's mag magicians do? totally genius. Here's what they do. They go away. We read in verse 20 and 20, 22 and 23. I'll just read it to you. What they do is they go and they find some fresh water and they turn that to blood too. Verse 22. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. 
Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take this to his heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water so they could, not find, they could not drink the water of the Nile. In other words, these people went away from the river and they found wells, you know, in the aquifers. And they would pull up this fresh water. And so what do the, the magicians do? They say, well, hey, you know, Aaron can turn, he can defile all the water. Well, we'll find some fresh water and we'll defile that too. And this is supposed to be a great miracle. You know, if you really wanted to do a miracle, they should have turned the bloody water clean again. But that's not what they did. So once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so God goes on to the next plague, which is also a strike at the heart of Egyptian idolatry and worship. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up into your house and into your bedroom and into your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. Frogs. What's the deal with frogs? Why would God send a plague of frogs? Well, there's a very specific reason. The Egyptian goddess of fertility was the goddess Heket. And Heket was a, a woman's body and a frog's head. And according to the Egyptians, frogs were sacred. And therefore, they were not allowed to be killed. They were not allowed to kill them, which is why, if you read further in the chapter, in verse 8, you'll see that Pharaoh actually comes to Moses and says, ask your God to make these frogs frogs die because frankly we can't kill them we're not allowed to and and Moses says I will but you got to promise me you're going to let my people go and Pharaoh says of course of course I'll let your people go just get rid of the frogs so Moses prays to God the frogs all die and of course you know the story Pharaoh reneges on his repentance and he reneges on his agreement to let the people go it says in verse 14 that they ended up with piles and piles of dead frogs. You can imagine people with shovels just shoveling frog carcasses into big piles and they're just rotting and stinking. Millions of rotten frogs everywhere. Just try to imagine. As soon as the frog problem is taken care of though, of course, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. He reneges on his promise to let the people go. And that's, isn't that how many of us tend to be? In crisis, we'll make any promise, right? But when the crisis is over, we forget those promises. We, we can even forget our repentance. We go back to the way that we were right before. We'll talk about that more next week too. But Heket, the frog goddess of the Egyptians, was the goddess of fertility. It was the goddess of sensual love because frogs are really good at reproducing. Now maybe you say, Nick, thanks for the history lesson. Very interesting. I'll remember that if I'm ever on some kind of trivia show or something. Awesome. But here's the thing. This is not just a history lesson. If you stop at that point where you think this is just a history lesson, then you haven't really understood what's going on here. And here's why. Because the exact thing that God was doing to the Egyptians is the exact thing that God wants to do in your life as well. It's the exact thing he wants to do in my life. You see, here's the thing. We tend to look down on the old pagan cultures and consider them primitive because they worshipped everything as a god, all kinds of different gods. They basically worshipped all kinds of stuff. But really, you know, the only difference between ancient pagan cultures and our modern culture, see, we worship the exact same things that they worshipped, but at least they had the self-awareness to call a spade a spade and admit it, right? We worship the same thing, but we don't like to admit it. 
See, each of their gods represented something. This was true of all ancient pagan cultures. They had sex gods, they had gods of prosperity and gods of power, gods of money, gods of romance, gods of family, gods of beauty and success and happiness. And the truth is, we worship all those same things ourselves in our day as well. Human beings have not changed. We haven't progressed from that point. See, we still worship all the same things. But at least we can say this, at least they were more sophisticated than us in the sense that they were willing to call a spade a spade and admit that they worshiped those things. We, th- we like to think that we progressed beyond that. But if you look at popular media for 10 minutes, you'll see that we're still worshiping the exact same things. The human heart hasn't changed. We still worship wealth and beauty and family and power and all these things. See, there's a very interesting passage in Ezekiel chapter 14. Verse 3. And the context of it is this. God is speaking about the elders of Israel. Now these are Jewish people. And Jewish people prided themselves on not being idol worshipers like the other nations around them. So who is he speaking to? The elders of Israel. The leaders of the community. And here's what he says to the elders of Israel. He says, you have set up idols in your hearts. Now you can imagine the elders of Israel, much like us, they would have said idols. What are you talking about? I don't see any idols. We don't worship idols. We're, we worship God. We don't see any idols. And God is saying, look, man, idolatry is not about statues that you worship. Idolatry is something that takes place in the heart. See, idolatry is whenever you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. And you place your hope in it and you place your trust in it and you look to that thing to give you what only God can give you. You have made that thing an idol. For example, with money, right? If, if you would say, if I can make this much money, then I will be secure, then I will have significance, then I will be happy, then I can finally rest. Rather than finding your security and your significance and your source of happiness and your source of rest in the Lord God and who you are in Him and what He has done for you, see, in that point you have elevated that thing, in this case money, to the place of an idol in your heart. And here's the thing, oftentimes the things that we idolize are not things that we have. Oftentimes they're things that we want to have, that we're straining to have. Or you can do it with family, you know, you can say, this is what makes me secure. This is what gives me happiness and significance. If my family looks like this, or you can do it with romantic love. If I have a relationship with someone that looks like this, then I will be happy. Then my life will have significance. Then I'll have security. Then I can rest. And the list can go on and on. There are a million good things, but if we elevate them to the place of central allegiance in our hearts, the best word to describe that kind of relationship is worship. See, the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how we relate to the idols in our hearts. First of all, we love idols. Secondly, we trust idols. And thirdly, we obey idols. So we love them, we trust them, and we obey them. One author, Timothy Keller, he put it this way. He says, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions. I think that's an amazing definition. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. 
In fact, this theme is so central to the Bible that some Old Testament scholars have said that it is the central principle of the Old Testament, that the central principle of the Old Testament is the rejection of idolatry. And if you look through the Old Testament, I think you can see that. You'll find story after story which tells of the devastating effects of idolatry, whether it be the love of money or the love of romantic love or the love of success or the love of pleasure or power. That's Pharaoh's story here, here. He, he idolizes power and he refuses to obey the Lord because then he'll have to let go of power. And the Old Testament is also full of stories of how God confronted idolatry in people's lives in order to set them free from it. Because what the Bible would say is this, if you are worshiping, if you are serving, if you are idolizing anything other than God alone, then you are not free. Then you are a slave to that thing that you worship. You're in bondage to it because you believe that you must have it. If you idolize money, you will be a slave to it because it will, yield, it will wield a controlling power over your life. And it's true of whatever it is that we elevate to the ultimate place of importance in our hearts other than God. If, and, and here's also the other thing. Anything can be an idol in your life and especially good things. The only way to be truly free is to worship the Lord and serve Him alone, to find in Him all of the things that you look to other things to give you. If you are able to find your identity and your significance, your security and your rest in Him, rather than money and family and, and romance and success, then here's what happens. All of those things, the money and the romance and success and all that, they just become things. They become things that you can enjoy, but they don't become things that you live for. They no longer define you. They no longer drive you. You don't have to have them. And at that point, you are truly free. The Egyptians looked to Kunam, the protector of the Nile, for security. They looked to Osiris and Happy to provide for their needs. They looked to Heket to give them fulfillment and happiness. But the Lord God confronted their idols. He exposed them and revealed them to be truly powerless and to show that the people's trust in them was misguided. Now, why did he do that? Was he just being mean? Did he just want to stick it to them? Show them, hey, you guys shouldn't have done this? No, I don't think so at all. Was he just flexing his muscles and showing off? No way. It was so that the Egyptians would put aside those idols, so they would no longer trust in them, and they would put their trust in him instead. It was to show them that he alone had the power to protect them and provide for them and fulfill them. And God will do the same thing in our lives, in your lives as well. He will confront our idols. He will allow the things that we have mistakenly put our trust in, he will sometimes allow them to fail so that we will realize that our trust in them was misguided, that we need to be fully trusting in him. Now, some, and you know, sometimes the thing that you want more than anything, he won't let you have it. And you wonder why. Is he just mean? Is he harsh? No, I think that there's a sense in which it's done so that you will realize that you've been idolizing this thing. You've been putting your trust in this thing, your hope in this thing, that if I have that, then I'll be okay. But he wants you to see it's not that thing that you really need. It's him. That thing is empty. It's powerless to give you what you're looking for. It can only be found in him. God will confront your idols and cause them to fail for your own good. You see, that's what he did here with the Egyptians. So that you will look to him. So that you will worship him. So that you will serve him alone. And in doing so, so that you will be set free. Let me ask you this. Are you bold enough to pray this prayer? 
It's a bold prayer. Are you bold enough to pray, God, confront every idol in my life. God, even destroy every idol that I've set up in my heart and set me free. That's a gutsy prayer, but it's worth it. We'll finish with this final thought, the curse reversed. This section ends at the end of chapter 8, verse 15. Um, it ends with this in this way. The, these plagues of blood and frogs, they come on the land and the people are grossed out and everything's defiled and everything's impure and, and disgusting and gross. And, and so Pharaoh asks Moses to pray and asks the Lord to, to take away the frogs and the frogs die, but the, I guess you could say the consequence still remains. They, now they have to deal with all the dead frogs that are still there. And so guess what Pharaoh's magicians do once again? Just like they did with the blood. They show up and they use their occult magic. And what do they do? They make more frogs, which is genius, right? Like if there's anything we need when we're having a plague of frogs, it's some more frogs. Like we've got frogs in our ovens and in our kneading bowls and in our beds. And here come the magicians. And they're like, hey, we've got this covered. We're just going to make some more frogs. Genius, right? See, here's the deal. These guys come on the scene, and every time they do, they can only make the problem worse. They never make things better. They never reverse the curse. They never fix things. Now think about how this relates to us. You know, you and me, we're a lot like Pharaoh's magicians. We have that Midas touch, but we don't turn things into gold. We turn them into mufflers, right? We, we Think about how this is like us. Messing things up is easy. That's easy. Anybody can do that right? Defiling things. That comes natural to us. That's no problem. We can do that all day long. Take pure things and make them impure. Sign me up because I'm good at that. Yeah, I can do that. But the real miracle is to take things that are messed up, take things that are defiled and make them right and make them pure. It's the power to take something that is stained crimson and make it white again. That's a real miracle. See, Moses even, he can expose the problem with the Egyptians' religion. Pharaoh's magicians, they can come and they can make pure things impure. But the real miracle of taking something that's defiled and making it clean again, that's something that only God has the power to do. And that's what redemption is. You see, that's the gospel. Redemption is taking something that is condemned and saving it. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. See, because many years after this, blood would once again flow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was pierced. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. The message of the gospel is that in spite of the fact that our hearts always tend to stray from God, tend towards idolatry, God loved us so much that he sent us Jesus, the Redeemer, to do the greatest miracle that's ever been done. Whereas the blood which flowed in the Nile caused death and defilement, as Jesus' blood flowed, his death brought cleansing and healing and beauty and life. And it turned that which was defiled pure again. See, because Jesus took our curse upon himself. He took the plague that we deserved because of our hard hearts. But like Pharaoh, because like Pharaoh, we've resisted God. And he bore our plague. He bore our curse so that it could be reversed. So that we could be redeemed. So that we could be cleansed. So that we could become pure and holy in him. So this morning, I want to just encourage you with this. I encourage you to look to him. 
and say to him, you are the only one who has the power to save me and to cleanse me and to set me free. So I embrace what you have done for me and I forsake the things I've been looking to and trusting in instead of you. Thank you for what you did for me. Thank you for being my savior and I ask you to be my Lord. I pray that you would pray that prayer with me now. Please stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this picture we have of defilement and how it refers to your blood, Jesus, which did the opposite of this, which made us clean again. Well, I pray if there's anyone here today who would say, you know what, I'm kind of a lot like Pharaoh. God's been showing me himself, revealing himself to me, calling me, drawing me, but my heart is hard. But I pray that you would open people's eyes, open their hearts to receive Jesus today. Lord, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time, I pray that today all of us here would say, yes, Lord, I receive the gospel. I receive what you did for me. I thank you, Lord, that you died so that I could live. You took my defilement to make me pure. Thank you for that message of the gospel. Thank you for how it speaks of your love for us. Lord, may you empower us by your spirit to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.